we wanted to create a timeline, you know, that showed the incredible long perspective of the cultures of the goddess from many millennia, and then the short, short period of patriarchy. And really to claim that, to claim that long period and to say that that is our heritage and that we all started with that, and that this is just a minor blip, a detour of some kind that we got off track. Welcome to Fair Folk. I'm Danica Boyce. Vicki Noble is an artist, a writer, a speaker, and a feminist historian. She is perhaps best known for her co-creation of the Motherpiece Tarot deck in the 1970s, along with Karen Vogel. In her 20s, Noble undertook research into prehistory and archaeology, and began to find inspiration in long-hidden images of the sacred feminine, images that had been repressed and misunderstood in tradition and scholarship for some thousands of years. As co-creator of the Motherpiece Deck and author of the book Shakti Woman, about female shamanism, Noble was one of the primary initiators of the Goddess Movement, whose influence endures today in anthropology, folklore, and New Age spirituality alike. In recent years, the Motherpiece Tarot deck has enjoyed a resurgence in popularity. Most recently, imagery from the Motherpiece deck has been taken up by the Christian Dior clothing line in their 2018 resort collection, bringing this formerly underground iconography very much into the popular aesthetic and symbolic consciousness. I met with Vicki Noble in Dublin, Ireland, where she was giving a weekend workshop on the tarot. She spoke about her experience designing the Motherpiece deck how 1970s archaeology reshaped how we see prehistoric Europe, and how a combination of intuition and research can help people reconnect with feminine power and natural cycles of the earth and of human life. This episode belongs to a series called Far Folk, recordings I've taken while on the road in various European countries, taking live recordings of performances, interviews, and events related to folklore, traditional living, and traditional music. Presently, I am in a barn in the mountains of Georgia, about five kilometers from the border to Turkey. Um, I'm surrounded by hanging hay, and I'm in a uh, bed of corn husks. Uh, This is the quietest place to record, as the house is full of singing, and there's a lot of rain falling on the roof. You might be able to hear that even now. I fund this travel and research almost entirely on my own, So if even a handful of the many people who listen to this podcast chipped in a little bit, it would help a great deal in keeping this project going. I have a great number of recordings from the few months that I've been traveling so far, and I'll be spending much of the winter editing those so that I can share those amazing recordings with you. You can subscribe to give a couple of dollars monthly at patreon.com slash fairfolkcast if you like, or you can find my PayPal button in the show notes. If you want to see more of what I'm up to, Visually, I'm very active on Instagram at danica.child. You can also find Fair Folk Podcast on Facebook, SoundCloud, or the podcast app of your choice. And now for my interview with Vicki Noble. Hi, my name is Vicki Noble. 
co-creator of the Motherpiece tarot cards. That was my first claim to fame in the late 1970s and early 1980s with Karen Vogel, the other artist. And I've been doing this work for the goddess, work with the goddess for 40-some years now. So when did you first encounter the tarot? Well, in the late 70s, Karen and I were a couple at the time, and we moved with my daughters to Berkeley and settled down, you know, for a few years. And during that time, everything opened. It was magic. It was as if I had finally arrived, you know, in the right place at the right time. And the whole uh, psychic energy movement opened up for me. I started to have really important dreams and to learn to work with my dreams. And I had kundalini energy, uh, psychic experiences, very uh, out of context since I had grown up in the Midwest and didn't have any basis for understanding what was happening. But it felt appropriate. It felt really sacred. And somehow we came at that time into the whole concept of the mother goddess and the old religion of the goddess. And we began to do research. We were both researchers, Karen, an anthropologist, and I'm a feminist historian. And together we started going to all the wonderful libraries in Berkeley and Stanford and so on. And just we, every, and everything I wrote in the Motherpiece book, all the things we put into the Motherpiece cards in the way of imagery, and all the things I wrote about the cards in the book, which came out, you know, in 1981, a long time ago, all of that has been corroborated by science and archaeology and, you know, the things that have happened since then. So that's great because it was intuitive for us. A friend brought a tarot deck over is how it happened. I had never seen a tarot deck. I'm not even sure I had heard of it. And the friend brought one over, and I was just fascinated. And then Karen and I began using it, you know, and then we began studying it, and then we, we drew pictures. What were these experiences that you were having that, that made you feel like something was, was happening? Like, the, Well, can you, think you know, of they sound like events from outer space or something. <laughs> really, yeah, it, was, yeah. it was a period of time where things were just paranormal in my life and in our life together. Uh, one, when we got to Berkeley, for example, just the simplest things, we decided to buy a house. We had no money and uh, no jobs. And so a, a friend, uh, through wonderful serendipitous circumstances, you know, took us to the credit union and we told the loan officer, well, we have degrees and we don't want to have jobs because we want to write a book, but don't worry, we'll pay the mortgage. And he said, okay, and we signed. You know, it never happened now. Uh, and it was a miracle even then. It was very cheap. We got a five-bedroom house and, you know, with nothing and with very small payments that we could manage with my child support and her stipend from her mother. You know, really, it was, we lived on nothing, and we did that really happily in Berkeley in, in that period of time. It was really special. And by the end of the five years that we lived together and made our project, the housing market had boomed, and our house was uh, worth enough money to get a second mortgage and finance the motherpiece cards. And so it was sort of, it was all just flowing, you know, like it was meant to be. 
everything felt that way then. But we were so fortunate, and it was a, such a blessed time because in Berkeley, which is like a mecca for so many intellectual, radical ideas, and it's, so, it's such a good garden for that, we were able to connect with so many others who were thinking like us in certain ways, and the goddess movement kind of took shape in Berkeley in that time, even though we didn't know we were a movement. <laughs> Was there much scholarly activity around around early European goddess mythology? And well, it wasn't really uh, anchored yet. It was more like it had been earlier. You know, there were men who had written, well, there were men and women, actually, who had written interesting scholarly books about goddesses and the goddess, the old religion of the goddess and so on. Eric Neumann and... Um, Bachhofen and Briefolt, these old names, you know, from earlier times. And they, they weren't archaeologists, and they didn't always have the right dates, as it turns out. And uh, so, you know, they aren't exactly credible today, but they were fascinating for us. I, I had first come across a book called um, The First Sex, by Elizabeth Gold Davis. It was in 1971, maybe, or 72. And she intuited everything about the things that we ended up writing and drawing. She just knew that there was a time in the past from the from what little archaeological evidence there was, there was plenty to show that that was true. And she put it into a framework and said that this was a culture that worshipped the goddess, a worldwide culture that worshipped a goddess and organized itself around that worship. So she stimulated or catalyzed the process for us. Yeah, so can you tell me something about the, the research that you did and how you like formed the project? A lot of it was imagistic. Now, we thought we were writing a big, important book, you know, but instead we used images more than anything because they were so prevalent in all of the archaeological material. Even amateur archaeological scholars were using images, figurines from the Paleolithic. They call them Venus figures, you know, Venus figurines, but they're really uh, ancestral female figures, very numinous and powerful, archetypal. Mm -hmm. And so that we started with that, and then we found all the Neolithic, all the agricultural period, figurines, pots, um, some script, you know, in old Europe. It was Maria Gimbutas, the Lithuanian archaeologist who moved to um, first Harvard and then UCLA. She was the one who really put it in a context and called it something. And so she created a, a discipline called archaeomythology. Mm -hmm. And in that discipline, she used all of her uh, skills. She was very skilled as a linguist, read primary sources, um, she had grown up in Lithuania, had collected folk songs as a teenager, and she had lived with uh, some of the peasant people close to the earth who, uh, she said, woke up every morning and kissed the earth. 
to greet the day. Thanks to the goddess, to the mother, to the earth mother, you know. And those kinds of things were in just in her uh, visceral experience of life in Lithuania. But her parents were very intellectual, both doctors and part of the resistance movements and so on, even inside of when it was communist. Mm-hmm. And so she had kind of both, you know, this very scholarly bent and a lot of support for that from her parents. And so she was very well educated as a young woman. And then she also had this very close connection to the peasant people and to the old ways. And she understood when she began to dig in Greece and Macedonia, she was already famous, actually, as a Bronze Age archaeologist. Weapons, 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 she said to me once, <laughs> the Bronze Age. But uh, she started to do her own digs, and she w- she found a strata below the Bronze Age that just lit her up. She said, this is completely different. She put together and conceptualized the the culture that she called Old Europe from about the 6,000 period to the 4,500 period of time. And so it was the fluorescence of that old European culture that had its own script, and the script was... uh, kind of written on on women's bodies in the figurines and in the pottery and and so on. It's very female-centered, and she saw that, and she named it. And she showed in a very methodical way in her book, The Civilization of the Goddess, she showed the really interesting, complex movements of people as they were displaced by the incoming Indo-Europeans. She did it in detail. It was meticulous and terribly interesting so that each culture would be moved out if they weren't completely massacred. They were displaced, and then they would end up sort of hybridizing with another culture, and then that would be called something else. And you can just watch the thing happen on the map. And that was called her Kurgan theory. She called the incoming invading population male population, she thought. Uh, And she was right. The DNA now has shown that that's absolutely true. And she documented it and, and documented what was there before you know, and what the culture was made of. And she didn't call it matriarchy. She thought that was sort of a buzzword that put people off. So she used the word matristic, which kind of means, you know, matricentric or female-centered. It was an incredible window, the 70s. Merlin Stone's book came out, uh, When God Was a Woman. That came out in maybe 78 or 79. And she was, and we had thought we would write this book, but then her book came out. It was wonderful. It kind of did and said what we thought was our, the, our point that we wanted to say. And so we continued to work and, uh, and through, again, very magical, kind of fateful, serendipitous circumstances, we found the tarot and began to use it kind of obsessively and then began to study it and kind of blew through the whole Western magical tradition, you know, in a year. <laughs> and then we, I started to draw pictures. I thought my daughters were leaving for a year to live with their dad. 
And so I got them a tarot deck at a flea market. And the tarot deck was missing two images, two cards. And so, but, but in those days, tarot decks always had two blanks for just that purpose. And so I thought, well, I'll draw pictures. You know, I'd been starting to draw pictures just for fun. Mm-hmm. So I drew the cards that were missing, and it was really fun. The first one was the fool. I copied it. And then the second one was a boy image, the page of swords. And I thought, well, they're girls. So I'll make a girl. Mm-hmm. And I made an Amazon, a young Amazon girl for the page of swords, which turned into the daughter of swords mm-hmm. in the mother piece. And off they went to their dad. And I thought, well, what would it be like if I... I made a tarot deck, and I drew the Six of Wands, the first card in the mother piece. And Karen said, oh, I want to do this too. And I said, well, I don't think you can. You know, that's it's like a project. It's mine. <laughs> and she went off and made an image of the chariot that was just completely perfect and finished, you know, in 45 minutes or something, and brought it back. And I said, oh, okay, I see we're doing this together. And it was amazing to collaborate like that. We split the deck in half and chose the ones we wanted to do and did it. And at the end of the year, we finished just before my daughters came back. And the last card I drew was the Empress. And she's the mother. You know, it was amazing. The The whole project felt like that. The Tibetans say, when the streams come together and the conditions are right, then the treasure can be pulled out. Really, we felt that that was what happened. It's so amazing because I know that you both illustrated it, but the style is so consistent. No one can tell. Even our best friends can't tell who did which. That's so bizarre. Yeah, they can guess a few of them, but then they always miss. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. Yeah. So, wow. I love to hear which ones were made first and last, too, because I'm so familiar with them uh-huh, that it's uh-huh. like, it's, I, can picture, I can picture them more clearly than I can the, the Rider Waite oh, good. images, How even wonderful. though I see them more often. Really? I think, uh-huh. um, like uh-huh. at least in life, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Um, but, yeah well, then you would love uh, to know what happened at the very end, mm-hmm. because we made each picture as it came you know we made it on drawing pads and then we reduced them on a xerox machine and then we cut them out and put them on cardboard discs 78 of them and we had named each one and then you know step by step we put more images on the cards and by the end when we finished we had a fool the fool okay i made the fool she made the world the zero and the 21 But we looked at it and said, oh, but that woman in The Fool that I made, she's too old to be The Fool. She's too wise. She's too experienced. She needs to be in the world. And Karen had made the world as a child doing a handspring. So we did the Xerox thing and lifted the child out and put her in The Fool and lifted the woman out and put her in the world. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, can you see mm-hmm. the images? And and that was that, you know, yeah. <laughs> it was the beginning and the end, the That's zero amazing. and the so 21. So you knitted it together. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but without even knowing what we were doing. That's incredible. Yeah, That's it really was beautiful. really, really fun. We had so much fun that year. Drawing pictures, neither of us had ever drawn pictures, and we were drawing pictures as work. That yeah. was our work. That's incredible. <laughs> 
And it just happened that way. And it and just it's, happened it's that way. It's still here, and it's everywhere. Yes. And, you know, last year, the uh, Dior company licensed the Motherpiece images. Forty years later, they, I, they contacted me the night before my 70th birthday. And I thought it was a joke, and I sent the email to my daughters, and (laughs) then my younger daughter wrote back and said, Mom, be careful, there are so many scams. Oh, it's true. It's really what I would have said. Yeah, I almost threw it away. I I was with two friends. We had gone up north. I live in California. We had gone up north to, to go to the mud baths, and... And it was the night before, we were in a bed and breakfast, and that's when the email came. We had gotten back from the mud baths, and I said, I said to my friends, you, you, you have to come in here and see this weird email I got from France. And one of my friends said, who's France? <laughs> How do you see... Um these archetypes operating like archetypal imagery and the kinds of early symbols and images that we see in the deck how do you see people interacting with that kind of information today well in a certain sense the academic side has added very little contribution as far as i can tell they they see them as pornographic images they imagine them created by men for the purpose really I don't think it's been until until Dior took the images and made incredibly creative uh, expression out of them in their ready-to-wear line. <laughs> now they're going all over the world. The archetypes are working that way. I'm sure they work that way anyway when we go to museums and so on, but the captions are almost always wrong. What's presented as the meaning of those ancient images is usually not interesting and often kind of uh, ridiculous and um, dismissive. So for us to have the goddesses or the goddess imagery in our card deck taken and produced in such a way that women all over the world are seeing them in, in mass media and so on, without a whole lot of rhetoric around it. You know, the images are speaking for themselves. For instance, when this first happened at the end of 2017, my grandson called me one night and said, Nana, I'm watching the MTV Awards, and I'm not sure, but I think Michael Jackson's daughter is wearing one of your dresses. (laughs) And I said, well, honey, I don't have a TV, so you have to take a picture for me. And he did, and she was wearing the Wheel of Fortune, which has all the explicit goddess images around the border of the skirt and on the bodice of the skirt, you know, in in many different ways. They had integrated that card and a few others uh, in a beautiful, beautiful dress that she was wearing, and she was wearing it so proudly, and she was so bright. It made a brilliant statement that was very progressive and intelligent wearing the dress. And the next day, the journalists had gone crazy. It was wonderful. And in one review of of the awards and her dress and the picture featuring her, uh, they called her a goddess. Maybe it was even in the headline. So that's archetypal. They didn't know that these were goddess images. That person who wrote that wasn't thinking that. 
But he said the word, so it it kind of channels through the popular culture in that sense. And at that point, I thought something really big is happening. And when these things happen, you know, they happen from underground. They come up like an underground stream. I've always felt you can't make the goddess go away. Mm -hmm. It's our original conception of the sacred. And our participation or our embeddedness in nature, you can't make that go away just by saying that we're not or that we're above it or beyond it. We're not. We're part of nature. We, we belong to these cycles, the menstrual cycle, the lunar month, the seasonal cycles, you know, they contain us. We're inside of them, not outside. And I think right now there's something coming up again. It's another wave of some kind. Speaking of movements and things happening that are mysterious and and women um, and tarot cards specifically. Mm. I know that in my childhood and growing up, I associated divination with women in general, Uh Uh Um, though I'm not sure if that's like across all time and all places, but I wonder if, if that's something that you've observed or if you've had thoughts about about the relationship? Oh, absolutely. And I think even in the States, you know, even in the most conservative areas, I think it's sort of agreed that women's intuition is something. It's just that women are not really allowed to act on their intuition a lot of the time. You know, there's a kind of, we know things, but if we try to act on them or speak them out loud, then there's a lot of silencing and prohibition that goes on. But, but yes, I think, it's, I think there's a general understanding of women's capacities in those ways. Tea leaves and, you know, all the oracles. The, the oracles were taken over, of course, you know, when patriarchy took over uh, 5,000 years ago. But that doesn't mean that it isn't women in most places who still are bringing that through. Just like the textiles and things like that and pottery, it's still women's fields and it's understood in most places to be women who make those kinds of ritualized art forms. Yeah, so there is some connection there too between like craft Yes. And divination and ability to see things beyond. Uh, What is that? Well, you know, all the so-called crafts put you in trance. If you make pottery, you go into trance. If you make textiles, you go into trance. If you sing, which all the women in all the cultures sing, Mm -hmm. it's only Western, uptight, industrialized culture that doesn't sing anymore. And so that, that also puts you in trance. All those things are shamanistic. And in, the, in Europe, in our European tradition, it was burned out when so many women were burned at the stake. We don't know the numbers. And during that time, we didn't lose those art forms, those oracular forms. It's just that it's so background now and not foreground. But it, Mary Daly, who was such a brilliant feminist philosopher in the 20th century, she said her whole uh, paradigm was that there was this patriarchal foreground that we're locked into 
in some way through our enculturation and our institutions and the family, but that all you have to do is to fall back into the matriarchal background and everything begins to open up and make sense. Fair Folk is a radio show and podcast exploring folk culture and music from around the world. The show is hosted by Smithers Community Radio, CICK 93.9 FM, smithersradio.com, and can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. A big thank you to Michael Levy for providing his ancient lyre recordings for use in this episode. One of those tunes is from a 3,400-year-old hymn to the Sumerian goddess of orchards called Nikal, which was found inscribed on a cuneiform tablet. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.